everybody. Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robbie Wagner, and my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter III, with our guests today, a couple of the guys from Frontside. What's going on, guys? Hey, not much. They don't have names. The faceless. I guess I should have said names, but... <laughs> the ghost-faced Frontsiders. You can always just introduce yourselves a little bit. We're just known as the Frontside guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought it would get confusing. Well, it's going to be confusing anyway, because we got two Charleses. I mean, we just call you Chuck, I guess, but, and we got Taras. I guess for people that haven't heard of you guys, maybe give a quick intro. Is about- this, is this going to be the, is, are we setting history? Is this the first one with two Charleses? Yes, we usually have lots of Chris's. Yes. So this will be the first. <laughs> and usually they're not really named Chris. Yeah. It's just everyone who goes by Chris showing up. <laughs> um, so this will be the first Charles Squared episode. And I'm the first Taras. You would definitely are the first Taras or Taras or any other way they want to pronounce it incorrectly. But yeah, if you guys uh, want to give a quick intro about, I guess, who you are or what Frontside does or whatever you want to want people to know about. Sure. I'm Taras Minkowski. I'm CEO of Frontside. And um, Charles and I have been working, I think, for almost five years now. And uh, it's been fascinating all along. And... Um, it's been really fun just shaving a lot of yaks. <laughs> My name is Charles. I uh, also, I like to, whenever Chuck is in the room, I like to call him Tokayo, which is like, uh, you know, at least, I don't know if it's all of the Latin American world, but at least in Mexico, whenever you have someone who's like their same name, they call each other Tokayo. I am the CTO of Frontside and man, I just don't know what I would do if I wouldn't be like developing. Like it, it just, um, it's all so interesting and there's too many interesting problems and I'm a hopeless, hopeless addict to the technology and maybe one day I'll quit the game, but I can't see an exit. I don't think there's any hope for me. <laughs> it's worse problems to have. <laughs> Let's get started with a, a little of the sauce to, uh, yeah, get us going. So today we have the Balveni Double Wood, age 12 years, 100% malted barley, as all scotches are. This one is special because it was aged in bourbon barrels, I believe, whiskey, traditional whiskey barrels, I don't know, uh, and then finished in sherry oak. There you go. That one had a very interesting pop to it. <laughs> Looks like it's eighty six percent. I think the other Balvenie we have is similar. Glub glub. Yeah, this one smells very sweet. Oh yes, it does have kind of a grape juicy smell to it. Hmm. It's got some weird flavor. <laughs> like apricot. I don't know what it is, but I'm catching some apricot from mine. Another made up words. Now I'm not usually a Scotch drinker, but this is this is good. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Uh, it doesn't have the over peat or over smoky flavors that a lot of scotches have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of like a ice wine. Like it's very sweet and I don't know. The texture is different than usual. I guess. Yeah. Lacks some of the burn that we enjoy though. <laughs> the friendly burn helps put hair on my chest. The friendly burn of the hug, uh, I say. I mean, it's easy to drink. It's interesting for scotches. 
So Taras is having a different one because logistics. I don't know if you want to speak to the one you're having. It's a Singleton Liberty. It's a celebrating of a hundred years of expertise. It's quite good. It's actually very smooth. It's uh, that's one of the things I liked about the the double wood when I had it. It was kind of very, you know, like what you said, not a lot of extra things, you know, not too pity, not too perfumey, not too strong, you know, it's just like a nice, very pleasant drink. And this is actually similar in that it's not the same drink at all, but it has the same kind of qualities. Very pleasant to drink. Yeah, this to me seems like it could be like a good dessert. Oh, I've had a... The Singleton. Yeah, the Singleton. Uh, what is it with the thes? The Singleton, the Balvenie. No. Uh, I just skipped the... I didn't even realize there was a the. I say there's a design pattern joke in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, all uh, all scotches established in the late 19th century must be preceded by the... The? Yeah, the Balvenie. It's not just any Balvenie, it is the... And yeah, I would say this is after dinner, you could have one as a little dessert kind of thing by a fire in a cabin somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it, it seems to fit for me. I think you need books in the background. Lots and lots of books. Leather bound books. That's mm-hmm. a good point. <laughs> I believe in the tentacle scale. I'm going to give this a five, though. Smooth. It's easy. Maybe a little too easy for me. <laughs> too much like Sunday morning. How many tentacles are there? It's a five out of... Out of eight. Eight, okay. Such as an octopi may have. I just wanted to confirm that it wasn't... Yeah, I think I would also give it a five. It's a little bit... Um, you know, it is easy to drink. It's kind of middle of the road. It's um, a little more similar to like a bourbon almost. It has a little bit of a scotchy finish. Um, so it's not bad, but not the greatest. So I give it a five. I like bourbon, so maybe that's why I like that. Yeah. Same with me. I just like a little more bite on it. I think that's, but the lower proof is probably contributing to that too. So it's like 86 proof. I'm going to need above 50% to burn my insides. <laughs> From the inside out, I would like fire in my belly. Just put some Everclear in it. Yeah. yeah. Some people put water in their whiskeys. I just put drops of Everclear in mine just to <laughs> up the danger. If you can't light it on fire easily, it's not enough alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in your respective tastes, do you guys have a rating for the two different whiskeys? So, I mean, for me, I'm a, I like, I like rye. So I, you know, I like sweet whiskeys. I like ryes and, and Irish whiskeys. So as far as scotches goes, I'd have to put this one at like a seven. There we go. That just might be where I am with the journey. Mm-hmm. Indeed. These things can evolve over time. Mm-hmm. What I'm drinking is a different drink. So I don't need bite. <laughs> I know, but this is all subjective to you anyway. Hmm. How is the singleton rate in your whiskey adventure? It's so easy to drink that I could probably drink this like water. So I don't know <laughs> what that says. Is that like an eight? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is water the best thing you've ever had? <laughs> I mean, it's essential to life and all things. So I would say it's pretty up there. It's surprisingly pleasant to drink, but I also wonder if that's, you know, if it's so easy to drink, is it not like enough challenge for me? Just not enough yucks to shave in this beverage. Mm. Yeah. If you, I derive joy in some of, uh, in a little bit of heat, a little bit of burn, a little bit of pain in my whiskey journey, but not everybody likes that. So if ease of drink makes things better for you, then why not? 
I think you've convinced me. I think it might be a little too easygoing. <laughs> I think I want something that has a little bit more bite to it. That's fair. All right. So, Charles, are you still... Oh, wait. You didn't give it a number, though. I'm going to pressure you into a number. I'm going to say a solid 5.75. Three <laughs> <laughs> and a quarter stars. <laughs> it's what happens when, a, when a, an octopus encounters another octopus that is stronger yet has teeth. <laughs> exactly. Could lose a little bit of that. All right. So one of the points that we were discussing that we might want to talk about today is uh, going into maybe like less than ordinary GraphQL stacks to run a server. And, you know, it just basically, it feels like Apollo is everywhere. And because it's so pervasive, like it's just what everybody ends up doing, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing for all cases or any cases or whatever else. And Charles had like a uh, brief discussion, discussion in a discord chat that I saw where he was talking about like his dream GraphQL stack. So I thought we could maybe discuss that a little bit. <laughs> why? Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I, that I, I do like, I get really ashamedly excited about uh, an alternative GraphQL stack, but it's nevertheless the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked about it. If I can just jump into kind of the, our explorations and, and kind of what we found there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So we, kind of happened on this by chance. I don't even know where. I think uh, I think it was uh, Taz, kind of one of the last things he dropped was like, oh, you should check out this thing called Envelop. And at the time, I looked at it and I was like, hmm, it seems kind of cool. I don't really get it. But then we were tasked with coming up with a GraphQL system. And just because of the nature of the product, it needed to be embeddable into a bunch of different contexts. So it needed to be embeddable into an HTTP server. It needed to be embeddable into just a little command line utility. And it needed to be, I don't think we, we didn't have to embed it in a WebSocket, but it had to be like embeddable inside of a test case. So it had to be transportable. And so that, am I describing Apollo right there? No, I, <laughs> I am not. And so um, we kind of were searching for a, a bunch of different solutions and we kind of happened on these two technologies that were had just kind of just come out at the time and it's GraphQL modules and Envelop. And using these two together, you are able to have really extreme flexibility when it comes to your GraphQL uh, stack. So let's start with like the GraphQL modules. And all that really is, is a way to separate pieces of your schema in, is it a vertical, in little vertical slices. So you're able to, to co-locate the resolvers and the schema and the, you know, it's mostly just the resolvers and the schema, right? Taras? And the types uh, that you're going to like the TypeScript types all in one little directory or one little module. And so what you do is you, you specify a little bit of GraphQL schema, just the bits that you need. And then you specify the resolvers that work on that little piece of schema. And then the GraphQL modules will do all the work of stitching together that whole schema and presenting it as a single schema. 
you know, stitching together all the resolvers. And it's really neat because you can extend pieces of schema that you find elsewhere. And then at your entry point, you just say, okay, you import all your modules, you put them into one thing that's called like a GraphQL application. And now you've got, you know, you, you basically have an executable schema with your resolvers. And then what Envelope does, which is really, really nice, is it's a GraphQL plugin system, essentially, that lets you, in a composable way, do things like, say, here's how we're going to specify our context. So I want to add this value to the context. I can use this plugin to do that. And then I've got another plugin that's going to add this value to the context. And then what Envelope does is it says, I'm not going to assume anything about your runtime environment. I'm just going to give you a function and you can call this function with your initial context. And I'm going to give you a thing to parse a GraphQL query. I'm going to give you a thing to execute a GraphQL query. I'm going to give you a thing to validate and I'm going to give you a couple of other things. And it turns out that it's the bare minimum JavaScript API that you need to embed it anywhere. So if you, say, are going to do GraphQL over HTTP, you can take the request, but Envelope doesn't assume anything about how you're going to, to unmarshal all of the values from the HTTP headers and the body and whatever. You do that yourself, and then you're like, okay, now that I've got the GraphQL query body, I can parse it with this function that it gave me. And now that I've got this query and it's parsed, you know, I can validate it. And now that I've got it, I can run it and it gives me my context factory and my execution function and I can stitch it all together. And so it seems like a little bit of overhead because it's like you call this function, it gives you like five more functions <laughs> to call. But, but these five functions you can call in any context. So then when it came to do it inside of a CLI app, we could you know, take the body either from like standard in and like command line options. And then we have those same five functions, which are kind of the low level interface and we can pass them there. And then underneath that, we've got GraphQL modules, which are kind of dividing up all the functionality, you know, all the different moving pieces of the schema. And so what is really nifty about this is you it kind of made us reconceive the way we think about GraphQL applications is more being like almost like an executable shell uh, is the GraphQL application. And then the contexts in which we access it from are just access methods to get into that shell and run commands. So I've been talking for a really long time, but does that kind of get uh, the gist of, of why I'm excited about it? Yeah, yeah, I think you explained it on two different levels. It's interesting because to what you initially explained about GraphQL modules kind of sounds like an extension of the ideology within federated schemas, but instead of just mm -hmm. co-locating your schema, you got to do your resolvers as well. And this whole like modularization, like think about it in terms of like web modules, right? And you're co-locating all interrelated items. It's like same thing, but mm -hmm. within the context of GraphQL. But it sounds like to me, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm grokking that correctly yeah. or not, but uh, no, I think, uh, I think you are. Yeah. And then envelope ends up being like less opinionated in your interface. It just gives you the tools to process and you decide the interface and the inputs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess I did get it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what you end up with is this is just hyper portable thing. And so you could have it. Yeah. Like executable, like you said, across like, I don't know, service workers or 
you could have a desktop application with that interface too, or things like that. Yep. I think one of the nice benefits of this setup is that it gives you the benefits of federation without the upfront cost of federation. Mm -hmm. You can break up your application or your, your GraphQL schema and the resolvers into separate kind of modules that you can use, but you can choose when you're going to introduce the, like the federation of the, of the network layer, like when you're going to actually federate, like break that up across services, you could choose when you could do that yourself. Right. You don't need to start with that. So you don't, you're not kind of like choosing either. I have completely unstructured schema that is like one huge thing that is like has a whole bunch of resolvers or I jumped into this whole thing where now I have these like services that are federated. And now there's a whole bunch of complexity you need to deal with. You just kind of start off with, okay, well, I want to be able to compartmentalize my schema into smaller pieces. So I could say like, this is like this, you know, user related schema is here. And then like account or product related schema is in the other set place. And then you kind of keep things separated kind of cleanly. But, and then if you do ever get to a point where you need to break those up into separate services, you can make that leap, but you kind of choose when you're going to do that as opposed to doing that on day one. Right. Like it's an organizational structure at first and not a complete architectural commitment. Yeah. There's one other piece that I think might be worth mentioning in there is that the, uh, the GraphQL generator stuff is actually pretty helpful too. Because if you're going to be, I mean, you'll be using with TypeScript, so being able to generate types off of those modules um, and be able to generate like the types you need for resolvers mm -hmm. and then be able to also stitch the schema into like a single schema from the, from the modules. Like all of that stuff is enabled with the GraphQL generator. So that's kind of becomes kind of like the, those three pieces together end up working together. Yeah. It's um, really, really nice. The, I should have mentioned the code gen part because you're doing the schema first, you have all of the types for your resolvers are just there and you just don't get it wrong. It just clicks into place. feels really good. That's just something about GraphQL modules and using GraphQL code gen. That's, I guess, the third piece that I, I forgot to mention. So thank you. Yeah, I have it in my list here, too. So was, <laughs> yeah, I believe that was like the general stack that you had brought up. Uh, GraphQL modules, GraphQL code gen plus envelope forward slash core. Mm -hmm. You know, I know Robbie's dying to ask, why can't you do this in JSON API? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that gets messy on a lot of ends. Like if you go down the path that Runspired was talking about of like doing, what is it, uh, JSON API flavored GraphQL mm -hmm. and then like using Ember data or Orbit with that. And like there's too many things happening there and it makes my brain hurt and I don't know how to do it. <laughs> like it seems like a very power <laughs> user thing to me. Yeah, he was talking about like combining the two, having like some of the power of the graph and then serializing for JSON API. I think if it makes sense, if your client is JSON API, you know, then you have the kind of concern. The For us, majority of the clients that we've been working with have been essentially Relay. So, and Relay has a lot of um, nice ergonomics around the client side of the GraphQL schema. So it becomes less the... Um, we don't really need to think about the serialization much. Like the actual serialization format becomes very transparent in that it's whatever the query is. And so it doesn't really come up much in our conversations today simply because our client doesn't really have that consideration. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. 
I mean, when it comes to the whole debate about the way you structure the API, I almost feel like what's interesting is that the client is almost irrelevant. It's more about just having a shared understanding of the capabilities of the API. Like, I actually think that working with GraphQL clients isn't that much better than working with a JSON API client because certainly at the library level, I mean, like for, for like UI libraries, I would say for, you know, if you're service to service, it's a no brainer. GraphQL is a lot easier, but I think where, where it actually does shine is just like you said, in the transparency of the query. So it's, it's just very, it's so much easier to communicate intent to other developers because they can have this tool that's, it's got a, you know, it's strongly typed. And so you can, you have all the completion and, and stuff like that. But I actually remain unconvinced that like UI libraries, like Relay is complex. It's difficult. And like, it's not as magical as other things that I've used. So I, I actually don't think that it provides the, the benefit. The primary benefit is to the clients that consume it, ironically. I think the benefit is to the developers that are trying to understand it. And I think it also does lend itself, GraphQL that is, to this kind of execution shell, minimal like metal application that I suppose you could do with the JSON API, but the JSON API feels more like a serialization format. Yeah, right. Predictable serialization is essentially, I think, how. Mm -hmm. And I guess it it communicates relationships, things like that, more clearly. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, part of the design of JSON API is that you get, you have a practical sideloading mechanism. So you get uh, the ability to to express sideloaded data in a way that is easy to parse. So that functionality is available with a combination of having the schema and the query. You, you know, that's what essentially Relay does. My take on Relay is that, it, is that I'm kind of interested in it and I think it's valuable from the perspective that there's a company that's spending a lot of money, which is Facebook, to create tooling that makes it possible to build, like one of, one of the build um, front-end applications that are strongly typed with respect to the back end that they consume. So that functionality is really helpful, I think, for for teams that are building full stack applications. But at the same time, I don't think the relay is perfect in that it, it does have a whole bunch of stuff that is like there is quite a bit there. And mm-hmm. it's unclear whether all of those things are necessary. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think that it really, you have to consider like the server to server case separately from the server to UI. If not relay, what else? I mean, we talked about the server stack. So, I mean, what is the what's the ideal combination of all of the above? Then, what gives you more automagic that you know? Hmm. For me, what I, what is really valuable if it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily be relay, but what I really like, especially for the clients for the companies I've been working with and the development teams we work with. The idea that if they make it, so, you know, if we have a monorepo that has front-end and back-end code, and if the back-end developer introduces a schema change, that basically they introduce that change, they can run build, and the front-end builds will fail. Mm. And that will kind of use, that will actually stop the back-end developer from introducing that change. That, to me, is like (laughs) a really, really valuable thing Mm. for teams that are doing full stack. 
So if you can if you can reproduce that experience with something else, then then and if you can reproduce that experience to something light, then that's great. But I think that's the, that's the criteria that I would be looking for. It's like, can you reproduce that experience of ensuring that the the front end will compile against the schema if the schema is changed, and vice versa, like the front end will compile against the back end according to the schema contract in the middle. Isn't there like a I forget what it was that you were looking at recently, Chuck, that we were going to use for Swatch to like make the front end and back end like have a contract for the. API basically. Oh, Pact. Yeah, the testing yeah. from Pact. Yeah, which Taras introduced me to years ago, actually, and I've never been able to like put it in place. But uh, if you control both sides of the equation, it's a nice, a nice safeguard, I think. Yeah, Pact is Pact is a little bit weird. P A C T dot I O. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Charles, you may speak. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the story of Pact. It's like everybody. Thinks Pact is a great idea, and I have yet to anybody know anybody who's actually implemented it. I include. I think it's a great idea, but I couldn't actually get it to work. So if you're out there, anybody, somebody, and you you have a successful implementation of Pact, someone in the Twitterverse, let us know. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It's a good point. It's a great theory. Maybe maybe we need to build the easy to use version. Maybe that's a need to be filled. The one where we do what we want on the front end and the back end is just forced to comply with everything you say. <laughs> that is your dream life, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's fair. We can enable passive aggressive front end commits. I wonder though if Pact was came into existence too early. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, the, the what what's yet to be explored in its full greatness is what we can do with contracts because We've been able to, like, pushing on the GraphQL schema as a contract, we've, we've been able to put a lot into it, and it gave us a lot back. And I think something similar is possible with open API spec or some kind of other API spec, but at this point, it's still hypothesis because tooling around open API spec, although it's, super, it's pretty well integrated or, you know, there's a lot of tools that are emerging to use it, but the tools that exist around open API spec are still very, very basic. Because even if you look at the generators that are created from that are created for open API spec, a lot of them leave a lot of lot to be desired. They're not a lot of the generators are not generating useful or good code. Like that's the thing is that, that I like about relay is that Relay is very intentional in some ways. Like it's like it generates code that is really practical for your React applications. But for the open API spec generators that I've seen, a lot of them they generate code that make like every time I look at them, like I really don't think people should be using this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not ready for prime time. Bad examples. Yeah. And so I, I don't know how um like that's that seems to be an area like that I would really love for us to get to explore more. But it's not a shack. I mean, a yak that we're ready to shave. You know? Can you think you could put it on the blockchain? <laughs> Open API spec. Maybe that's the problem. Is there's not enough Web three? Yeah. Need more blockchain and everything. Yeah. If there's not any blockchain, I'm not sure it's worth going any further with it. Can you simulate the blockchain? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you could. Actually, I'm sure you could. I think you're right. Yeah. Want to simulate the execution of a smart contract? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parlor games is like anytime someone tells me about a blockchain thing, you're like, let's like let's repeat the same scheme except without crypto, <laughs> and like 
And like, you know, 90% of the time it's still, it's like, fine. You just subtract the crypto. Uh, it feels kind of like the days of like Node.js, mm -hmm. like the early days of Node.js, where it's like we're we're re-implementing this in JavaScript, so it'll be blazing fast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it'll be blazing fast for people to make stuff because not everybody wants to write Java or Rails. Yeah, no one wants to write Java unless you work for a bank. Mm. They still don't want to. They just have to. So, Taras, were you going to tell us about your NFT project? No, but I was going to tell you about, I was going to bring up the fact that the, um, one of the Web 3, point, I mean, three, Web 3 foundations, uh, it's a um, graph foundation, just gave the team that created Envelope $40 million as an investment to, to essentially support the development of the GraphQL tooling. What? That's a pretty, pretty massive wow. investment. Uh, into the GraphQL tooling. It's that's braggable. Yeah, that's a pretty substantial that's a pretty substantial boost for for the tooling around that that envelope and GraphQL ecosystem. Yeah, is that the guild who did that? Yeah. Yeah. And like Hive and CodeGen and a bunch of things. Yeah. That's impressive. Forty million. I don't know how it works, but I'm guessing that they're they're getting that money to build the the things that Web 3.0 is gonna need. Mm. Or the graph protocol is going to need. Yeah, graph specific protocol. Yeah. yeah, that seems interesting. I think we should all do some POC projects now in that <laughs> contribute back. <laughs> yeah, all you have to do is random JPEG generator and we're millionaires, right? <laughs> I think we have to get somebody to buy those things, right? Yeah, that's a problem. There's a marketing aspect. There's a whole arm of marketing that associates value to that, right? Like, so it's got to be... You just have to have FOMO. Yeah. If you get people interested and they're like, oh my God, I got to buy it right now. Yeah. Then they don't look into whether it's a scam or not and they just send you lots of money. And there's supposed to be additional value to it, right? There's ugly ape drawings, but then you get invited to exclusive parties and stuff. Yeah. Major League Baseball was hawking nfts last year uh robbie tried to buy some oh we tried to yeah we tried to get them we we tried to buy the baseball card packs and we were sitting in line for like an hour online and then they just all sold out jared got one but chuck and i got none yeah we got none <laughs> you were literally online yep yeah we were all just waiting to give money away and we couldn't give them <laughs> our money yep they ran out of digital cards Somehow you can't just make more print another one. Nope. Well, I mean, if they printed unlimited, they wouldn't be worth as much. I get it, but yeah. make it a little easier to acquire. Like we were in line from the second it started mm. and could not get them. Oh, so it's an interesting thing. I mean, I can see the utility. The Tota files uh, that we learned about. The what the file, the what files? Yeah. The, What's the name of the company that we spoke to last week. That has oh yeah, it's a non-blockchain crypto asset company that actually sounds really compelling in the sense that you can give away or you can mint digital assets and you don't need to compare it against a blockchain to validate authenticity. So, like, if you and I are in a room, you can I, I can you know show you the baseball card and you can analyze it and say, oh, this is legit without having to like have it in a public registry hmm. privatized hmm. web three sounds very not web three 
Sounds more Web 4. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting the way that um, Dan described that it. it's a kind of Internet of Things without the Internet, which is like, it's really um, trippy. But when he explains it, you kind of get this like tingly feeling like, oh man, that seems so right. Because mm. I think what I understood from what he was describing is that there's this concept of you own like in the real world, you own something or you possess something or you hold something that represents something. And then what if that was a, something that was possible on the internet? But if you were not on the internet, it was still, you could still own it and transfer it. And then once it was back online, it, it was verifiable that it was still the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's a really kind of a trippy... Um, Mental exercise, but that's what I really like about the way that Dan explained it. It's like it's really he's really really thinking it through. Yeah, no, he the way he explained it was what we were really just trying to do is simplicity itself of like is there a cryptographic way of representing a piece of paper in the sense that I can take a notebook card and I can write something on it and I can hand it to you and it's the only copy of the thing <laughs> that's there and you don't need to like use your iPhone to analyze, like to connect to something, to read my note card. You can just read it and you can take notes on it. You can flip it over. You can give it like dog ears, but you know, it's still the same note card. It's like a portable identity that doesn't require some third party verification. Yeah. It was interesting. And one thing that was not possible in the system is what's happening with NFTs where you've got this shell that is um, transferable. It always is on blockchain, but the contents of it is completely like mutable. So you have a, yeah. you know, you have a, a chimp code that can become something completely different just simply by changing what's running on that URL. Right. Yeah. I do think that's a flaw of that, right? Is that you're essentially purchasing a, a hash in the chain and it has, mm-hmm. I guess the traits are there and they're kind of locked but the visual representation of that can be mutable, which is a little, okay. I like it in the context better than like, well, I don't know. I, I mean, collectible art is, is one possibility. And I think there's a lot mm-hmm. to like iron out there, but I liked, there was um, a podcast I was listening to like a couple months ago and Kevin Rose was talking about it in the sense of like, say wine club memberships, right? A club membership. So like a wine club membership right now, you like sign up at the vineyard and you're like an email on the list and they say they have like 200 max and people are in a waiting list and whatever else. But like, and then one day if you decide you don't want that wine anymore, you just say, take my name off the list. But instead an NFT could commoditize that membership. And now you are the owner of that membership slot Mm -hmm. and you decide you no longer want to be a part of that club. Well, you can actually resell that membership to someone it has like a, you know, say there's a 10 year waiting list, but it's probably pretty valuable for you to put it on the marketplace and NFTs can actually have originators still get a piece of every sale as well. So they're incentivized to like allow this kind of program too. And so it doesn't really matter what the image associated with it, right? It's the hash in the contract that says Mm. I'm a member of Mm -hmm. this wine club and I have the ability to make purchases direct from the wine club. And now this commodity can be resold. And I think that's a place where it's like, oh, this is something that could, could have value there. Mm-hmm. I think there is, there is a kind of a fundamental, maybe true, like 
essence to this thing, which is hitting at something universal. But what might be what we might be seeing is that the hype associated with the concept it's like the hype is so there's a the underlying idea is like is spot on but the implementation is wrong in the same way that that like palm pilot was fundamentally the right idea but like it wasn't until iphone came around that it was the, you know but the idea of a personal device really kind of stuck around mm. Um, and I think that something similar is going on is that there's the, the, the concept itself is correct, but the actual implementation is not quite there yet. Yeah, I think it's getting iterated on with like low risk usage at this point, right? Because like someone's mortgage isn't on an NFT that they could somehow lose. They're these like little like exclusive clubs that you're in. But in the reality, and even though a bunch of money's going around, it's still pretty like no one's life is at risk. From this if it fails it gets stolen things like that it depends how much money you're putting in i'm sure <laughs> some people have all of their money on the line buying up fake land online you just outed yourself <laughs> <laughs> i have a lot of crypto investments but not not land i tried to buy some land in the sandbox and it was too expensive so i did not yeah so what do you get in the sandbox when you buy land in the sandbox i'm unsure how much space you get but basically there's different land plots around like different, what would you call them? Like vendors or whatever. So like Snoop Dogg has his land, right? So you buy land near Snoop Dogg's place and then you get like some of his NFTs, like things like go to Snoop Dogg virtual concerts and like get a Snoop Dogg thing. Mm. You can show off like different stuff. So like, you know, for example, if you were like a weed company, you want to buy that so you can put up virtual billboards next to Snoop Dogg's place that are like, buy my weed and people will see them. Like there's things that make sense and would be cool to do, but I'm not going to spend 10 grand on a tiny little plot of land that I have no idea how it really works. Yeah. Sort of like high risk, high potential reward. Yeah. I mean, that to me just feels like second life with better technology now. Oh, yeah, boy. Yeah. Now there's a name I haven't heard in years. Those, like, all Meadowlands. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do they go under? Charles still has his Second Life land set up. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think so. I think people will still play it. That was actually one of the first projects that, like, Frontside did, like, way, way, way back in the day. It was, like, a database migration, not for Linden Labs, but for some company that ran a newspaper inside second life they had an entire like they were changing like their publishing platform and so they had like actually they they purchased a commercial publishing platform in the real world to publish a newspaper in second life and they had to, they wanted to do a database migration uh and i remember thinking this is nuts i can't even <laughs> i can't believe i'm like migrating a database for a virtual newspaper and yet who knows maybe it's still maybe it's still there <laughs> could be i don't know the sims were enough for me mm. so much extra work to set up a second life life yeah my first life is hard like i like games that are grindy and work but i don't want it to literally be work <laughs> <laughs> it has to feel like work but it has to be a game well, they have that VR game, Job Simulator, where you are working in a cubicle. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> right. I don't know. It's popular. My brother has it. My son played it, apparently. 
because so he could pretend to be a grown up. I'm like, don't rush it, kid. It's not great. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a matter of time, buddy. Yeah. Kids always want to be grown ups and they don't realize how much it sucks <laughs> until you get there. Oh. You can do whatever you want. Not because of you, I can't. <laughs> because every child thinks that like adulthood is like Grand Theft Auto. Like that's the way you think of adulthood. <laughs> I can just do anything I want. Yeah. Or you like you make a little bit of money and like it's cool at first. You're like, I got money. I can spend this on stuff. And then you're like, wait, I have responsibilities and bills and this is not cool anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can eat whatever I want. Wait, why am I getting fat? <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, my son is getting to the age where he wants to make money. And I'm like, here we are in the middle of Finland. We live like around a bunch of like old people who need to have their snow shoveled. Like you could charge so much money. It's like money just lying on the ground. It's hard work. You can like you're at the perfect age. You have a perfect clientele. He's like, no, I need to build a jetpack. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I'm going to make the money. Shoot for the stars, kid. Because he wants like a skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so selling jetpacks to buy skateboards mm -hmm. seems kind of like a backwards <laughs> exactly yeah. uh, you've got a jetpack kid you can get anywhere <laughs> you don't need to skate in the snow yeah it does seem like a lot of overhead for a skateboard mm -hmm. yeah dad i need 10 grand so i can, <laughs> yeah. skate so I can get a skateboard <laughs> yeah yeah, no, but that that is literally the mental calculus. Oh, he's gonna do a sell it for ten thousand and one hundred dollars, and yeah. and then he can get a skateboard <laughs> and pay you back. <laughs> One of the things we like to ask our guests is if they have other hobbies aside from technology. Hmm, a lot of hard thinking around. <laughs> yeah, you're asking some hard questions right there. Yeah, that's a tough one. Could you do anything else? I really have been enjoying learning Finnish. So I, that's been, I've kind of put all my other hobbies to the side and decided like, if I'm going to be living in Finland during this time, I'm going to learn Finnish. And so that's kind of, I would say my biggest hobby right now. And there's actually the space for learning a language on your own has gotten like really good. Like there's a lot of language communities where you can get online and like talk to people who are also learning there's like the Duolingo app, which I don't know if anybody's used it here, but it sounds cheesy. Like, how am I going to learn a language from an app? But if you're diligent about it and you spend 20 minutes a day with it, you will definitely up your game. That's definitely been my hobby the last three months. And it's a hard recommend to anybody who wants to like try it. Like learning a language has definitely never been easier. One of those things, it seems like an impossible task. I've stopped and started that process a number of times. Yeah, you might find yourself finishing it. I'm going to Italy in May if I could get like even a little bit proficient uh, where my wife didn't have to do all the speaking. The Italian one is fun because like, you know, half the words are like pasta. Beepity boppity boopity boppity. <laughs> Like, you know, stuff that you already know. <laughs> you actually talk with your fingertips. Pizza. Uh, <laughs> I think if you can learn enough Italian to be able to order an Americano without with offending somebody, <laughs> you know, I think that's a good level of Italian to have between get between now and then. I would also be personally offended, though. I don't like Americano. I drink a <laughs> oh. espresso. 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 Come on. Yeah, it's tough, though, because 
you want to learn enough to be able to do those things and kind of blend in. But like, that was my problem is I learned for like a couple of weeks and we got to the point where like we made it in, like they may have still known we were tourists, but like they were speaking to us in Italian. I was like, okay, you got to stop. Like, I don't understand what you're saying. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you get what you get if you try to go that way. Yeah. Dialects all over Italy too is the problem. It's Mm -hmm. like you're learning, I think it's Florence or something. That dialect is the national language, but it's very different everywhere else. So just go to Florence, Firenze, and then you'll be fine. (laughs) Interesting. Is your wife Italian? No. I guess you haven't seen her. No. She's blonde and pale. Definitely not. She doesn't listen to this, so it's fine. <laughs> she could be from, what is it, Milano? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. We've got a place in Lake Como. We go visit George from time to time. <laughs> George Clooney lives. Yeah, he's not Italian. No, but he lives there. Well, I guess he kind of is now. He's like a resident. Yeah. Yeah. He got by. Mm-hmm. He's also from Northern Kentucky, actually. I like to tell anyone who will listen. We're from the same area, so we're basically the same. Mm. So he'd probably come on the podcast, right? I'll ask him, you know, see what is maybe through his dad. I can, hey, hey, Nick, can you talk to George for me? Thanks. <laughs> I feel like he's not very busy. Wanna, I'll send him a bottle of whiskey. I mean, come on. Yeah, he can't afford his own whiskey. He's always drinking Nespresso instead of like real coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Nespresso and, and that damn tequila, whatever it was, they, him and Randy Lerner sold. I, don't know, I didn't see that one. Trace Amigos or something like that. That was him and. Uh, mm. and Randy Lerner, um, who's Cindy Crawford's husband. Gotcha. That was a lot of pop culture for you guys. See, that's one of my hobbies is remembering random facts about pop culture. I'm good at trivia. I don't have time do you play? to know things other than coding. <laughs> I do play. Whatever it was you were going to say, I, I play it. <laughs> and whatever the rest of that sentence was, I play. <laughs> I play and I play hard. Trivial Pursuit. Oh, yeah, I used to. Uh, I was always bad at the sports questions, which is funny. Really? Oh, because you're a... They weren't about soccer? You're a footballer. Yeah. Proper football. I, <laughs> so I don't know that much. Like, I didn't realize the Bengals were in the Super Bowl until like a week before. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really know what was going on with the NFL, but... All my friends back home are really excited. I was like, oh, because... Yeah, I think... Uh, focus Northern Kentucky, the connection. I think you're allowed once, like, you know, for me, I once I had kids, I had to narrow my sports horizons so i was like i have to pick one sport and that's just that's going to be my hobby because i can't spend all day saturday and sunday watching sports yeah you get to zone in on a team too because of that mm-hmm. similar thing like i could watch soccer all weekend but i'm not going to be allowed to get away with that <laughs> kids won't tolerate it so <laughs> you gotta like zone in on your team and then just follow your team right but the beauty of that is then your kids become addicted to your team and so then that's synergy. Yeah, it's the intersect. That's just because I buy them the jerseys. So they're like, sure, <laughs> let's wear a red shirt. <laughs> they call them the red friends because that's kind of how I describe soccer to them. It's like they're all friends playing together to try and win the game. So they're the red friends. <laughs> the red friends. <laughs> I mean, they're two and five. So, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a slow uptake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so the red friends definitely sounds like, um, well. So Taras still has no other hobbies. Cigars? Uh, it's not really a hobby. I mean, I don't do it enough for it to be a hobby. 
<laughs> I've tried. It's really inconvenient because you can't type with with like a cigar in your hands, you know, <laughs> put in your mouth and smoking all over your face. Like it's just, it's not it's not practical. It's not, not as it, glamorous as it seems. Yeah, it's not a hobby. I think what the closest that I have right now to a hobby, which is not really by choice, is that I am learning how to adult in an age appropriate manner. You know? You know, I'm approaching 40 now. So, you know, I'm at a point where I should be adulting like it's pretty much up there, right? Like mm. I should be fully adulting now. Mm -hmm. So I'm discovering that I can do things like, you know, for the first time in my life that I could do things like uh, fix a drawer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <That's Yeah>. a... <laughs> or make the bed. The aptitudes of home ownership. Yeah, that, that one, that one my, my wife does for me. So that's, <laughs> Do you have any power tools? Because I feel like that's a real, like, deep dive into that whole mm. adulting as a middle-aged male. I'm still riding in the coattails of my dad's. Those are my dad's power tools. But having, like, tasks that otherwise I never had to deal with just kind of, like, impose themselves on me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do these things because that's what I do. That's what, <laughs> that's what adults do, you know? Yeah. And not, not like, not like make like a big fuss about it. Like I hate doing this stuff. Like why am I doing this stuff? You know, but actually yeah. just do it because that's what adults do, you know? So that's what like uh, my hobby right now is seeing how far that will take me before, you know, before, um, before I want to push back and find some way of expressing like my protest to adulting. I like going to the hardware store. I don't know why. It's like I always end up with random stuff more than what I went there for. You know, I went there for some screws and then I came back with like new locks and latches and whatever. I don't know. Oh, I could fix some other things while, while I'm here. Let me get some plaster. I don't know. <laughs> that is a nice thing about being a, a software engineer is like, you know, having disposable income to spend on like high quality screws. You know, it feels good. Yeah, I can get the seven cent screws. I don't need the three cent screws. I can get the seven cents <laughs> nicer ones. So, yeah. The problem I have is like, you know, I can do all these projects, but it gets to a point where one or two is fun. And then when you get like 10, you're like, I need to just hire someone to do these things. Mm. And then that becomes its own thing. And yeah, it's it's just too many things to do. Yeah, there does there tends to be like a time barrier. Exactly. And like... Oh, what's the complexity here? Yeah, that's eventually it just gets to be too much. Yeah, I'm starting to do like if there's a thing that doesn't require my specific brain, someone else is going to get hired to do it is the level I'm at because I have too many things to do. Mm. I installed eight smoke detectors and 10 under desk power strips at the co-working space and someone else could have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I have the opposite problem right now, which is there's too many little random things to do to hire someone. Yeah. They're not specific enough to like, oh, I need this person to come in. And they're not like frequent enough that I like, oh, I need to come. I need to get someone to like, do them. They're just like l random little things like they just pop up here and there. Those are the kind of things that I'm adulting about right now. Yeah. I'm not quite at that level. I mean, let me hire somebody who's kind of natural to me, like outsourcing the work that I need yeah. to be doing. <laughs> Operating a threshold just below that is the part that's just like I'm learning to be better at it as a hobby, closest to a hobby. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I find some like meditative qualities in some manual labor. So there's like a certain hmm. threshold of things that like I like to do myself and not because like 
just more than anything, that's like a nice mental break. Yeah. That's like uh, this winter I got to experience for the first time in my life, the joy of uh, snow shoveling. We were just talking about, I was mm. telling my son he needs to do with the neighbors. Like I won't let him do our yard and our walkways. Cause like it is satisfying. Cause here they've got these big like push carts where you're just like, <laughs> and you just, you're, you know, you're just shaving the top. It's almost like mowing the lawn really in the sense that, you know, the, you, you have these, concentric circles that you're like narrowing down as you go or you like you know sometimes you're shaving rectangularly sometimes you're cutting across oh it's very very satisfying it's like cutting broccoli or something (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like the immediate gratification of of things like that because it's just like you know you do one pass and that pass is done it's like nice that looks good Mm -hmm. yeah robbie over the summer took up the hobby of mowing a lot of lawn well, I mean, it, it wasn't a hobby. I'm forced to mow for two hours every time. <laughs> oh, my. Is your yard big or do you have like a, a homeowners association that's like. No, we have a, we have 10 acres of land now. So Ooh. it's a little bit of mowing. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a tractor or like do you ride like you sit on? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's when I listen to my podcasts. I throw on uh, like two or three podcasts and listen to them mow for two or three hours. Repeat, you know, in a week or so. Wow. Voila. Yeah. There you go. It's a time to disconnect though. Yeah. So I hardly ever have time to like listen to podcasts because I don't have much of a commute home. There's no quiet time at work. I have to do work things. So then what? I just make the podcast. I don't listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, once our baby comes, I will be forced to not spend three hours outside mowing. So I'm probably going to have to hire someone to do that as well. Everything goes away. Got to have the baby. That's what the baby Bjorn is for. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. It's true. They're like, And the beauty of it is, is like children will bond to whatever situation they find themselves in. So like if you start mowing with, them now then in like five years you can just set them on the mower and away they go (laughs) you're five years old let's mow the lawn you've been doing it since you were six months old right that's right strap the baby to you you can get those like headphone noise canceling headphones Mm -hmm. for babies just pop that on good to go i bet the baby would sleep like a freaking log on a mower yeah the movement is great on a mower Mm -hmm. i mean i'm asleep when a car starts moving so i'm sure that (laughs) That my son will be the same. Oh, there he goes. The sound effects are pretty key. All right. Well, we're uh, about at time here. Is there any last minute stuff you guys want to mention or plug or stuff you're interested in you want people to know about? Man, I can't stop thinking about Dino. It's amazing. We could spend a whole hour talking about, about Dino. Like, it's exciting. It's everything you ever wanted node to actually be it's the real deal like i started playing with it about two weeks ago and it just feels great so i'll just throw that out there as something to look for Hmm. something to investigate it's definitely if there's a tech pick that would be it all right yeah i'll definitely have to check that out i've seen it around but i haven't checked it out myself yeah if go and node.js had a baby that's what it would be so it's got like it follows the go development philosophy where it's really easy to cross-compile for a bunch of different platforms. It's really to make, easy to make executables. It's got a bundled test tool. It has a bundled language server. It has a bundled formatter. It has a bundled linter. It just doesn't have 
Go, which is, I don't like Go. <laughs> I like JavaScript. <laughs> I get now, having seen it with JavaScript, I get why people like Go more than I did before. Hmm. Nice. Anything you want to close on, Taras? Yeah, I'm going to plug. I mean, I, I will be remiss to not talk about at least a little bit about stuff the front side has been doing simply because like it's just been so fascinating like i've been in way many ways looking for a long time for something that uh, was really like fascinating to me and the stuff the front side has landed like kind of arrived at in the last couple of years has been really interesting so the combination of like testing and simulation and the developer experience stuff and the emergence of developer experience as a, um, as a focus, area of focus, you know, especially with kind of the uh, arrival of backstage as being a thing. To me, it's exciting and interesting in the same way that like web and Ember was like when, you know, when it started like seven years ago, whatever it was, 10 years ago, almost now, right? Like that, that kind of just that sense of we're discovering something new and there are people who are actively trying to solve a problem that they, they all discovered is a problem together is really exhilarating. So it's nice, it's nice to feel that, you know, after kind of having a wall for a while. So that for, for me is really just really fascinating being like in the middle of the work every day and talking to developers and, and talking to business about how to make developers lives better. And what, what does that look like? It's just been really fun. So I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. And that's definitely a big problem that people are still trying to figure out how to address. Cause like, you know, there's not enough developers to do everything right now. There's always people hiring for developers, always new developers coming on the scene and they have choices between companies and whether they're prioritizing the developer experience or not. And that's going to be something people need to invest in, or they're not going to be successful in the the coming years so definitely a big problem to solve mm -hmm. all right well i guess we'll wrap it up there thanks everybody for listening and uh if you liked it please subscribe and we'll catch you next time thanks for listening to whiskey web and whatnot this podcast is brought to you by shipshape and produced by podcast royale if you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.